Most of us, I think, love good old-fashioned historical mysteries, particularly those that remain unsolved, at least until now. In 1587, a small band of men, women, and children put down the first tentative roots of English settlement on the sandy soil of Roanoke Island along the North Carolina coast in what was then considered part of Virginia. In the face of dwindling supplies and hostile Indians, the English leader, John White, left his family and friends and recrossed the Atlantic in a desperate attempt to assemble ships to rescue the failing colony. However, the threat from the Spanish Armada delayed his return until 1590, and when he did, the colonists had completely disappeared. In his dramatic new account, master historian James Horn revisits the tragedy of this first failed effort at English colonization in the New World. He offers new evidence about what happened to the lost colony and its people, and perhaps an answer to an unsolved mystery. Today we're fortunate to have with us Dr. Horn, who is the author of five books on early American history. He's vice president of research and historical interpretation and director of the John D. Rockefeller Jr. Library at Colonial Williamsburg. So please join me in welcoming Jim Horn, who will speak to us about A Kingdom Strange, the brief and tragic history of the lost colony of Roanoke. Thank you, and I'd like, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Nelson Langford and, and Paul uh, for inviting me here uh, today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to, to be back in Richmond. Uh, I was asked uh, before the talk uh, where I'm from. Um, I'm, I'm not from around these parts. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, so I mentioned I come from, from Kent uh, in southern England. I uh, spent most of my career teaching at the University of Brighton on the south coast. So uh, I do think of myself as a southerner, uh, and I'm proud to be a, <laughs> proud to be a southerner. Uh, and I think I'm in good company uh, this afternoon. Uh, as a uh, historian of early America, uh, I've long been fascinated by uh, the mystery of the lost colony of Roanoke. Uh, and uh, I thought that it had been pretty much uh, wrapped up by what, what had happened to the lost colonists that had been solved uh, by a very uh, eminent British historian, uh, David Beers Quinn. And uh, what Quinn had uh, developed as his theory was that when John White went back to England, uh, the colonists decided they had to move off the island. A small group went to the island of Croatoan and the majority went north to the uh, Chesapeake Bay. And possibly in this area, you can see it, the Lynnhaven River system here, and a small village called Chesapeake, or possibly up here, which is, indicates the Elizabeth River system, and this uh, large town of Skikoak, both of them Chesapeake Indian uh, communities. And that, that was the theory that was established in the, in the 1970s and with a few twists and turns here and there has really held sway uh, ever since. Quinn also suggested that the lost colony, John White's colony of 1587, was primarily intended to be an agricultural uh, settlement uh, producing the kinds of natural uh, 
goods, commodities that the region afforded that had been sketched out uh, at some length in some detail by uh, Thomas Harriet. So an agricultural colony that was meant, always intended to be on the Chesapeake Bay, they, they ended up on Roanoke Island uh, for various reasons I'll see if I can uh, go into later, uh, but, um, but uh, didn't get there initially uh, until they left the island and then moved north once John White had, had gone back to England. So, that, so that was, that, that's the standard theory, that's what most people believed had happened to, uh, to the lost colonists, and most historians for that matter. Now, uh, when I was researching the, uh, the Jamestown book a few years ago, I began to have uh, some doubts about that theory. And uh, doubtless it sounds a bit conceited, but uh, long story short, I realized that much of Quinn's theory was in fact uh, wrong. And uh, <laughs> a bit of an arrogant thing to say about an eminent British historian, but, there, but, but I had to start somewhere. Now it's, it's one thing to, it's one thing to uh, criticize someone else's theory. It's an entirely different thing to come up with a credible uh, theory of, of, of one's own. And uh, so over the next few years, I began to piece together, reinvestigate the evidence, look at new evidence to develop uh, what I think is um, the, the, the most plausible theory as to, to, to what happened to them. Uh, so my task uh, this afternoon is, is to convince you uh, that, that my theory is credible, that my theory is plausible. And I'm going to do that uh, really, really from, from three different vantage points. Uh, I, I want to look at the, 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 the broad context for, for the lost colony. I think it's very important to frame, to frame this story uh, in the broadest possible, uh, uh, against the broadest possible background. I'm going to do that. I want to look at the, uh, reinvestigate the reasons why the lost colonists went uh, to North America, uh, and particularly why they w were intent to go to the Mid-Atlantic, to the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and I want to look in some detail, I've got some new evidence to, to show you uh, about the specific origins of some of the lost colonists from, from London, which I researched uh, in some depth last, last year. And, and then having set that out, uh, why they went essentially, look uh, finally at what happened uh, to them. Now, um, I'm conscious that there will be some folks here that haven't read the book. I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but I am going to tell you where I think they ended up. But I will, will give you fair warning before I get to that point. So if you want to leave at that point, <laughs> I won't take it personally. Um, I should say I don't usually invite my audience to leave before I finish, but in this case I, I would quite understand. So let's return to, to this slide, uh, and it's a map from 1570 by Abraham Ortelius, the great uh, Flemish uh, cartographer. And uh, what I want to point out uh, is that a decade later, by 1580, everything you see in America is, is Spanish. There's, there's not a single European colony there other than the Spanish. 
the English had been exploring during the 1570s up here to, to try to locate the Northwest Passage. And in fact, you can see on this map, there is a Northwest Passage along. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why the English like this map. Uh, <laughs> you, could just, uh, you could just come up here to la uh, latitude 60 or 65 and uh, along this, this land mass here and onto Cathay, a reminder that the English are probing to find a route through the landmass to, to the riches of, of the Far East. That's the theme that's going to come up again and again uh, this afternoon. Uh, this is a map that could well have been familiar to Sawata Raleigh, who sponsored the Roanoke expeditions. And the other, the other intriguing feature of it is this uh, river here, St. Lawrence, coming well into the landmass. And then you see here these mountains uh, and connecting to the river here coming from the South Sea. Now, it is a, it is a large continent as <coughs> depicted on, on this map, but the way through is very obviously a, a river passage or water passage through the landmass. In the 1570s, the English are looking for this passage to the north, but, but of course this is the heyday of Hawkins, of Francis Drake, uh, of other English privateers, and they're looking for plunder in the Caribbean along the main here, Spanish main. Drake uh, penetrates uh, the Straits and moves up, Straits of Magellan, moves up the uh, coast of South America uh, en route to circumnavigate the globe between 1577 and 1580. So the English are very active in the North Atlantic and, and South Atlantic. The, the reason for this is that there is uh, a, a, going to say a Cold War, but it's warming up uh, pretty quickly between Spain and England. Spain is the superpower of the late 16th century. It's also the major Catholic power. England, by the 1570s and 1580s, is the major Protestant country. So th th there is a religious dimension to, to what's going on, not only in Europe, but, but also uh, in America, which we'll see, again, is a recurrent theme. First point I really want to make in, in sketching out this, this broad background is that Roanoke uh, colonization, English colonization, is ambitious in this period. It's not just about a small trading station, even a, a minor privateering base. It is, I believe, about the establishment of an English America in the north that can compete uh, with uh, Spain's empire in Middle and South America. So behind the efforts to locate a relatively small settlement initially, there, there are grand intentions. And this man, uh, if you're looking for grand intentions, you don't need to, to look much further than uh, Sawater Raleigh. Uh, this is a portrait uh, in the collection of Colonial Williamsburg. It's uh, Raleigh in his uh, full uh, ceremonial dress as captain of the Queen's Guard, probably around about the time of the Spanish Spanish Armada. Uh, and and we, we need to keep in mind that 
although the English generally are very interested in America from the point of view either of plunder or colonization, there needed to be a catalyst for that. And the catalyst, I would argue, is this man. He's uh, propelled from, translated from relatively minor gentry status uh, uh, to become Eng one of England's richest men uh, by 1582, owing to his uh, well-known love affair with uh, Elizabeth I. He's moving in the very top circles, not quite, uh, uh, he, he never got as far as he believed he should have uh, with, with uh, moving into the circles of power that he wanted, uh, offices of power he wanted to hold. But certainly his love affair with Elizabeth gave him the resources that he would need to sponsor colonization in North America. And we are talking about tens of millions of dollars in, in present day value to, to be able to, to sponsor these expeditions. They are enormously uh, expensive. So the rise and fall, the fortunes of Sir Walter Raleigh are very closely tied to the fortunes of English colonization of North America in this period. Well, let me, let me turn to this rather uh, curious map. I'll be showing you uh, several maps during, during this presentation. Uh, this one from 1582 by Michael Locke. Michael Locke was a London associate uh, of Sir Martin uh, Frobisher. Frobisher was, was one of the Englishmen who'd been searching for the uh, Northwest Passage. But I'm going to draw your attention not to the Northwest Passage on this map, but rather to this rather curious depiction of North America here. What you're looking at there is not the Panama Isthmus, but an isthmus that, that con connects uh, north, uh, the uh, New England region here, uh, the northern parts of North America, to the southern parts of North America here. Here's Florida, you see. You can see that, Florida there? <laughs> I think you'll agree. It's a, it's, a, it's a version of America we're not really used to. <laughs> Although I was saying there might be some that would favor it, especially if you could cut the link across, across there. But uh, I'm not going to go there in this, in, in this presentation. But, um, it, actually, uh, it, it actually is a map uh, that, that relates to an earlier map, the, the Michael Locke was 1582, this is a much earlier map, uh, which is Sebastian Munster's map of America. This dates back to, to around about 1540. The important thing about this map, uh, and again, you can see there's that isthmus there. Here's, here's New England, although here it's called New France. Uh, and here's Terra Florida, the Spanish possessions, uh, or would-be Spanish possessions. But here's that, again, here's that strange isthmus that... Uh, that you see. Uh, here's the South Sea, a great arm of the South Sea, the Pacific, coming inland here. Uh, and here's the, here's the Atlantic here. Um, this, uh, the, these maps, both Locks and, and Munsters, derive from a much earlier one, uh, which uh, I don't think I need to show you, a Verrazano map, which is an outcome of the explorations of uh, Giovanni de Verrazzano, uh, a Florentine uh, explorer in the, in the pay of the French. 
who sailed past the Outer Banks in the 1520s, mid-1520s, and looking over the Outer Banks saw the sounds and believed them to be the other sea, the other sea being the Pacific. And so <laughs> from, from that rather curious uh, misinterpretation, if you like, uh, there was born a, a, a legend, really, that lasted for at least uh, 130, 40 years that the South Sea, the Pacific, was not that far away from the Atlantic coast, maybe a few hundred miles, but, but certainly, uh, certainly uh, you, you could get to it uh, pretty quickly. So that's what these, these maps are showing. I'm not saying that these are the only maps of this period and they always show this, this isthmus. But what I am saying is that some did and no European had been into the interior of North America, so no one could say uh, exactly how far North America ex extended. Spanish had been up the west coast, Drake had been up the west coast, but was there a great arm of water that, that came in from the west coast that was, came close to linking the two oceans? But that's what the English uh, and French uh, and Spanish believed uh, could be a possibility during the half century after uh, 1530. So on the one hand, uh, we have the search for a passage, a water passage to, to the South Sea that's driving exploration of the northern continent. But here's, a, here, here's another uh, reason why Europeans were very interested in, in North America. Uh, in fact, this is a slide from an uh, image from the Drake Atlas, dates probably to the late 1570s, possibly the early 1580s. Uh, it, it, it's actually not North America, uh, but this is a slide showing enslaved workers in the uh, mountains of Colombia uh, mining for emeralds and, and diamonds. But it, but it does derive from Drake's expeditions, and it certainly is the kind of uh, objective that the English have in North America. They're looking for mountains in the interior because they're looking for mineral wealth uh, and uh, gold and silver mines. If the Spanish found them in South America, why not the English? Maybe they could find them in North America. Here is a, an image that's closer to home. Uh, here is, uh, this is taken from Theodore de Bries, America, uh, an engraving from 1590. And it shows a group of Indians uh, panning for gold, gold dust. You can see in the basket here. Uh, on the left, that's, uh, they've struck it rich. Uh, there's plenty of gold dust coming out of this pipe down here. On the left, there's another Indian gathering it up in baskets. Uh, you have uh, this, uh, this stream and these water. This is water here gushing out of this, this great rock right, right there. So they're sucking up or scooping up the... Uh, the gold dust from, from, this, from this pond or lake or river, and here's the, the water coming, at, coming down 
coming down from the mountains. So the gold dust is being brought down off the mountains in these, in these rivers. This is in, if I didn't mention it, this is in the Appalachians. So th this is a depiction of Indians in the Appalachians. And again, this, this, was, a f uh, this was a familiar theory uh, 20 years earlier. It's, uh, it's an engraving from 1590, but certainly this knowledge was, was available 20 years before. Well, here is a very, very important map uh, by a French Huguenot called uh, uh, Jacques Lemoyne de Morgue. He was part of the expedition that set up a French settlement at Fort Caroline in the mid-1560s. And whilst he was uh, in, uh, at Fort Caroline, which is uh, on the borders of uh, Georgia and Florida, uh, he drew pictures of native peoples and he put together uh, this, uh, this map as French, 1560s, and they pick up rumors from the Indians of gold, silver. There's an inscription along the top here, can't read it, but it says gold, silver, and copper coming out of the mountains. And here's a great stream, river, pouring out of the mountains right here. Uh, and this is the Monts Appalachie uh, up here, the Appalachian Mountains. And just at the very top of the map, if you could see it just up there, is the shoreline of a great lake or possibly the, the South Sea. It's, it's, it's not clear, uh, but uh, could, be, could be either. There was a rumor that a great lake would lead to, to the other sea. So uh, that, that's, some of the, that's some of the context. And what, what I'm trying to build up here is a vision of why the English were interested in the mid-Atlantic region. This is something far more familiar to you, I think. This is, this is John White's map of the, the Roanoke area. And this, uh, this, this was painted by White probably in 1586. A lot of the catalogues will date it to 1585. It certainly wasn't 1585 because in 1585 the English had not come up to the Chesapeake Bay. They uh, explored the Chesapeake Bay, or the mouth of it at least, in the winter of 1585-1586. So this was probably done at Raleigh's request in the su maybe the summer and fall of 1586, just before the uh, Roanoke uh, 1587 expedition was was uh, kitted out and set out. But here's a, a, an interesting connection. Um, this is a, a magnificent uh, map of East America by Eastern America by John White, but, but also incorporating work by that Frenchman, Jacques Lemoyne. Because Jacques Lemoyne, by the 1580s, which is when White is uh, involved in the Roanoke expeditions, was living in the area parish of Blackfriars, quite close to where John White lived. Uh, he had survived uh, the uh, massacre that, that took place at Fort Caroline by the Spanish. He'd returned to France, Jacques Lemoyne, and then he'd moved to, to England probably sometime in the, in the 1570s. He'd uh, been employed 
retained by Raleigh, maybe 1583, and Raleigh and White worked together to create this, this map. And the reason I think that Raleigh asked them to do that was to try to make the connection between the gold mines and silver and copper that he'd identified down here in the Appalachian Mountains uh, from that earlier map to this region that the English were settling and exploring. Now, it is a long way, to be sure, from, from here to here. But if there were some great rivers that would take you inland and perhaps connect to this, can you see this shadowy outline here of a, a shoreline of a great lake or perhaps the South Sea? You often find on these maps the South Sea is kind of hinted at right at the edge of the map. So I don't think by, by chance, uh, they, they, they know nothing about this. It's a pure speculation. But if you, ha if you could uh, uh, follow a river, maybe, uh, maybe the Maratico, the Roanoke River, down to, to this great river here and the shoreline of the South Sea, then maybe you could move overland into the mountains here. The English know that the Spanish are entrenched at San Augustine, uh, they would find it very hard to come down the coast by uh, the currents and winds are against them, and it's also too dangerous because of the threat of Spanish warships. But if you could find a way through the back door coming down here, that might be uh, another alternative. So I believe that Sir Walter Raleigh uh, was promoting the Roanoke colonies for three principal reasons. One, he wanted to set up a privateering base so he could plunder uh, the Caribbean. Two, he wanted to search inland to the west for the gold mines and so on. Three, he was interested in finding a passage to the South Sea. So um, that is, is, the, is the broader reason why uh, why he was interested in, in founding colonies in North America. Um, this is a, a slide, just a, an image to show you where he was living at the time. This is Durham House right here. Uh, it's uh, right at one of the grand mansions on the banks of the River Thames, uh, not far from Whitehall Palace and his, his uh, mistress, uh, his queen, uh, Elizabeth, and then he could easily get downriver by boat to the city if he needed to. And this uh, is an uh, image of London in the 1560s, and this is where John White lived, here in Ludgate, close to, this is St. Paul's Cathedral, right here. One of the things I wanted to, 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 to find out was... Uh, could, we, could we learn anything more about the lost colonists themselves? We have general reasons now why Walter Raleigh was interested in sponsoring a settlement in North America. But what about the lost colonists? What we, what we know of them principally are their names. We know there were 118 of them, uh, 92 men, 17 women, and nine children, all boys. But that really 
uh, although that's remarkable, I must say, that we have their names, we know very little about their backgrounds. So when we talk about the lost colonists, you almost get the sense that they're joined at the hip, that they're a group of lost colonists shifting around from place to place. Uh, and and uh, I wanted to give uh, a face uh, to bring alive some of their, their own histories as best I could. It's fairly well established that many of the lost colonists, many of those colonists who went with John White, came from the London area. That, that was pretty much known. And there were a few hints as to uh, where some of the others uh, were from. John White, it was known, came from London. But what more could we learn about them? So using some of the modern um, resources for tracing families, uh, I did several searches online to see if anything would crop up. And frankly, I wasn't terribly uh, confident that I'd find out much. But in fact, I th the uh, online resources uh, brought up quite a lot of evidence about the colonists. This is the first uh, effort that I'm aware of to actually place uh, lost colonists uh, in their parish of origin or their home parishes in, in London. I've not seen anything as uh, specific as this as to where uh, the colonists were from. And I, I should say I'm only dealing here with the, with the London contingent, but the London contingent was the majority of the 1580, 1587 colonists. Uh, here's Durham House that I mentioned where Raleigh was organizing the expedition. Here's John White, where he lived at Ludgate. What came out of the evidence uh, that, that I uh, discovered uh, both online and in London looking at the original sources is that there were two main centers of recruitment in London for the lost colonists. The parish of St. Clement Danes and the ancient church there right here, just uh, outside of the city of London. You can see the old walls here, Tower of London. This is the city, uh, the old heart of, of London. This area here, uh, just outside Temple Bar, St. Clement Danes. And there were maybe about half a dozen to a dozen settlers who came from, from St. Clement Danes, including John White's daughter, uh, Eleanor Dare and her husband Ananias. There was another parish up, up here, just, just further to the east, called St. Dunstan Stepnig, where again another cluster of settlers were from. And then there was uh, a number of them scattered around the city here. Now, it's, uh, it, it's, it's sketchy uh, and circumstantial, but a number of these parishes had very close connections with, with uh, Puritans in this, in this period, 1560s, 1570s, 1580s. London is the epicenter. It is one of the focal points of Puritanism in this, in this period. And j just to remind you that, that at this point, Puritans... I'm not talking about uh, Brownists or separating Congregationalists. I'm talking about Puritans who wished to continue the work of purifying the new English church. So the church 
establishment of 1559 under Elizabeth was considered by many to be, particularly in London, considered to be too popish, still uh, too, too much of the old religion, bishops uh, and the, uh, the ceremony and the vestments of, of the clergy. All of that was considered far too close to the, to the old religion. So Puritans are looking to further purify uh, the, the English uh, uh, religious experience the, to purify Anglicanism. So it could be that we're looking at the origins of some of the earliest English Puritans to make uh, the journey, the long and hazardous journey to, to the New World. It, it also connects with what we know about Raleigh. Uh, Raleigh's father was certainly of the more radical temperament. We know that Raleigh himself was sympathetic towards Puritans. Uh, he wasn't sympathetic to people that uh, crossed the line and uh, were uh, confronting or challenging authority, but his connections with Walsingham, Sir Francis Walsingham, another powerful minister, confirmed that he had uh, sympathies for, for Puritans. Uh, and he may well have thought that by recruiting Puritans, this would give more social glue to, to the colonists, might, might have inclined them to, uh, to take the risk of moving to this un unknown land in America. One of the first things that takes place, uh, first events at Roanoke in 1587, is the baptism of an Indian called Mantio into the Church of England. Mantio is the first uh, Indian, uh, he's a Croatan, who is brought into the Church of England, first of those on American soil. So uh, this, I think, was meant to be more than a symbolic act. I think it was meant to be the beginning of the conversion process of uh, Native Americans to the Church of England because the English believed, uh, might be rather short-sighted, but you could make Indian peoples English by first converting them to Christianity and particularly to, to the Church of England. So it's part of his vision of an English America which is a Protestant bulwark against the Spanish Catholic uh, uh, presence in Middle and South America. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, quickly move across the Atlantic to 1580, uh, to the settlement in 1587 and examine now what, what happened uh, to, to the settlers. Um, as uh, Paul mentioned, the, uh, the uh, settlers were left on Roanoke Island it's a, it's, a, it's a rather confusing story, and I, I can't go into that in, in any detail, but one explanation might be that the mariners transporting them wanted to return as soon as possible to the Caribbean to plunder uh, Spanish shipping, and therefore they simply dumped off the, the colonists on Roanoke Island uh, and left them pretty much to their fate there, promising to return with, with more ships. Uh, maybe six months or so later. Um, there could be other reasons, but, but uh, 
I sketch out some, some theories in the book as to, to what really took place. But the, but the important point is that within a few days of arrival, one of the lost colonists is killed. George Howe is killed by Indian warriors, Secatan warriors coming over from the mainland. Clear indication that the peoples immediately surrounding the island are continuing, uh, are, are hostile to, to, the, to the English presence. Uh, they are running short of supplies and they are also very concerned the Spanish might find them on the island. Two of their number had deserted. Two, two of the lost colonists had deserted in the West Indies on, on the voyage over. Would they tell the Spanish where the English were? Uh, apart from that, everything was fine. Uh, <laughs> But, but I, I think they felt that, that they had to move uh, pre pretty quickly. They uh, did not, uh, from what we know from the source material, they didn't say to, to, to John White just before he left, they didn't say to him, okay, we're going up to the Chesapeake Bay, you'll find us at Chesapeake or, or Skikoak. Uh, th there's no indication, apart from this rather enigmatic phrase, 50 miles into the main. That's what, they, that's what they said just before John White left, that they were about to go 50 miles into, into the main. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, to me, it means 50 miles into the mainland. Main, mainland, just, I take it literally, that they wished to, to move about 50 miles straight up into, into the mainland. Uh, if, if we look at where 50 miles into the mainland would take them and we, we put that location in the context of the Native American peoples in the, in the region as a whole, it brings us to the confluence of the Chuan River here and the Roanoke River here. That's, it's actually from Roanoke Island to this point here is something like 52 miles. Uh, I'm not saying that, that in, the late 17th, in the late 16th century, English colonists had a precise, they don't have GPS, they don't have a precise understanding of how far this is. But this area had been explored previously by the English. It's a huge waterway. It's easy to navigate or easier than going up Currituck Sound here, if any of you uh, know the Outer Banks, this is a pretty narrow and treacherous pas passage here. This, by contrast, is a relatively straightforward shot straight into the interior here. The added advantage is this people here, the Choanoks, uh, I believe were well disposed towards the English, whereas this group, the Secatans, uh, we Apameoks here, were not. Well, we, we certainly know that, that this group and this group were hostile. This group, we understand, were, I think, were, were more friendly. There's fresh water up here, and you're not in a swampy area such as you find down on the alligator here. So that's all John White knew. All he knew when he left uh, in the uh, late August of 1587 to return to England to, 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 to drum up reinforcements all he knew was they were heading 50 miles into the main. 
it shows us that they didn't have a clear idea exactly where they were going. So what was he going to do when he returned? We know when he finally returns, after a delay of three years, that he comes back to Roanoke, Roanoke Island. Why did he do that? If he knew that they were going to go to the Chesapeake, he would have gone there. So clearly, that doesn't uh, seem uh, likely that they told him they were going to the Chesapeake. Uh, I think the only explanation is that he went back to Roanoke Island because that's where the, the lost colonists were going to leave a small contingent who would uh, tell White where the main group had gone. And that's why he returned to find out where the main group were up, up here. We know that when he gets back to uh, Roanoke Island, all he finds is these mysterious messages carved in a tree and a post on the edge of the settlement, Crow and Croatan. And from that, he assumes, quite reasonably, that some, at least, of the colonists had gone to the island of uh, Croatan, about 50 miles to the south. Not all of them. That island would support all of them, but some of them had. So when he attempts to uh, get to Croatan to find out where the main group were, the ship is driven off the coast by, by a great storm. Uh, you'll find when you, if you read the book that John White is an extremely unlucky person. You would not want to cross the Atlantic with John White. <laughs> During the course of perhaps five journeys across the Atlantic, he gets caught in hurricanes and has various uh, adverse experiences for at least three or four of those, those journeys. And this was one of them. Because just at the point where he could have found out in 1590 from the settlers on Croatan where the main group were, he's driven away by a hurricane and the captain decides to abandon the search and return uh, first to the Caribbean and then to the Azores to plunder shipping. Okay, this is the bit where I'm going to tell you where, where they went. Uh, so... Uh, this is the most, in my view, the most remarkable early map of uh, this region. This is the Zuniga map. It's named for the Spanish ambassador, Don Pedro de Zuniga, who was the ambassador to the court of St. James in 1608 for the uh, Spanish king, uh, Philip III. So I've moved forward, bear in mind here, 20 years. It's 20 years now later. 1608 this map dates to and it's a copy of a, of a sketch map made by John Smith although it's called the Zunica map it's actually a map that was made drawn up by John Smith in the summer of 1608 difficult to, you probably can't even see it very well uh, but uh, if I can just give you some orientation here, here's the James River uh, here's Jamestown right here. And this, this represents James, uh, John, John Smith's explorations of the James uh, and the uh, Chickahominy River and rivers further north, Pamunkey and Mattapanai. This is the York. I'm afraid for those of you that like to uh, holiday down or, or visit the Outer Banks, the Outer Banks have gone. Uh, <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing there apart from uh, this little 
fly spec here, which is Roanoke, uh, and uh, so Albemarle Sound has disappeared also. But this is the Choanoke River and the Roanoke, uh, the uh, Roanoke River here. Yeah. So it's uh, it's difficult to interpret. But what what really is remarkable about this map is that it gives notations as to where the lost colonists, survivors of the lost colonists were, and these little notations here uh, tell us where the survivors were. This map is, uh, uh, I'm not claiming I've discovered this map. This map has been known to historians, but I think its significance has been overlooked. And I've reformatted it somewhat. Uh, just to confuse you further, I've, I've reversed it, so now... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you're going to have to work uh, to, to figure this one, figure this one out here. So, so we've got uh, Jamestown is, is down here, is the James River, and here is North Carolina, and here are the places where the lost colonists, um, survivors of the lost colony, uh, were situated. So we have uh, Choanoc and the Choam River. This, I believe, uh, is I believe this is the Roanoke although this actually is named up here for the Roanoke, but I believe this is the Roanoke. This is a town here called Okanahoan, right there. And here, you can probably read this, here the king of Paspahe, uh, the king of Paspahe led the expedition down to this area in early 1608. Here the king of Paspahe reported uh, our men to be and went to sea, that, or reported one man to be and went to sea. And over here at a place called uh, Pakarakanik is uh, here remaineth four men clothed that came from Roanoke to Okanahoan. <coughs> Indian peoples referred to Europeans as clothed. Europeans referred to Indian peoples as naked. Uh, so uh, one designation of a, of a European is they wear different clothes. Uh, it doesn't indicate that in 1608 survivors of the lost colony are still clinging on to their Sunday best clothes, European clothes, but it indicates they're Europeans. That, that's what it's saying. And what John Smith thought, and what historians uh, such as me think, is that these are lost colonists. So finally, I'm going to bring you to the final slide here, which is uh, just underlining, quite literally, on this map, where they ended up, not on the Chesapeake Bay. I don't believe they ever got up there, but westwards here. Still looking for the gold and the silver, possibly, Okanahoan, Panawick, Pakarakanik here, all Tuscarora towns. So they went one way or another to live with Tuscarora uh, peoples. Uh, and that's where I think they were for 20 years after John White left the island. There is a final twist here, which I don't have a lot of time to, to get into, uh, but uh, in uh, 1607, um, this is, a, of course, very familiar to you as John Smith's map. Draw our attention over here. Mango eggs are the Tuscarora. Uh, in 1607, I believe a large warrior group, maybe 400 men, of elite Poetan and Pamunkey warriors went down to 
the Chowan and Roanoke rivers and killed uh, peoples of those areas. This is, this is recorded somewhat later and killed peoples that, that could have had, uh, could have been living with lost colonists. So I think the lost colonists survived for 20 years and then were killed by Opikankano and, and these elite Poetan forces round about the same time that the English arrived, the Jamestown English arrived in the bay. Uh, Poetan and Opikankano did not want the new arrivals at Jamestown to link up with the peoples that still survived living with the Tuscarora and possibly with the Choanoc in the North Carolina hinterland. So as one colony began, the lost colony ended. Now, that's a rather sad uh, and depressing uh, ending, uh, but, but I do have one little ray of hope here, which is this group here on Croatan. Uh, that was the small group that had left Roanoke Island to tell John White where to, to go to reach the main group. I believe they do survive, and I'm one of those that take literally the evidence from an Englishman, John Lawson, in the early 18th century, about 17, somewhere between 1701 and 1705, where this Englishman, John Lawson, met a group of Hatteras Indians, formerly Croatans. Some of you may be familiar with this source. And he describes them as having uh, gray eyes, most unusual for Indians of that region. And he describes how the Indians told him that their ancestors could speak from a book and that they had a tradition amongst them which was well attested throughout the area that on certain days uh, they would see a ship, Sir Walter Raleigh's ship, that had brought the first colonists to Roanoke Island. I believe they were the descendants of that group of people who'd waited so long for John White to return uh, and never knew ultimately what happened to either him or their countrymen inland who joined the Tuscarora. Thank you very much. I'd be very happy to answer questions. I believe there are microphones coming around for those who, who would like to ask a question. Unless, of course, I've answered all the questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why, why not uh, take the simplest explanation that they were wiped out early on by that group you said were rather unfriendly? Well, uh, that there are several sources that indicate they weren't. Um, the first is uh, I showed the Zuniga map, which shows some of the survivors, but uh, there again, maybe the main body were wiped out. The, there is a source from 1609, uh, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's written up in an account by a man called William Strachey, who, who said that he was told by a Poetan Indian that the uh, lost colonists had survived for 20 years and lived 
peaceably with the Indians until they were slaughtered by the Poetans. So, so this is 20 years after the event, but nevertheless, there, there is evidence from the Jamestown period that they had survived uh, for that long. My name is Askew, and I grew up in that area of Chowan and Tuscarora, Cashaya, and uh, the Roanoke River in northeastern Carolina. My question is, is there a manifest of names of individuals that were part of the Lost Colony? Uh, there is a list of, of names of the Lost Colonists, yeah. It, was, uh, it, it, it comes through in, uh, from the period in a work by a man called Richard Hacklett, uh, but you'll find many, uh, if you go to the, for example, the National Park Service website for, uh, for Fort Raleigh, uh, they, they've got lists of names of not only the 1587 colonists, but also those who went to Roanoke Island in 1585, 1586 as well. Uh, so, th th uh, and actually I do include a, a list of names of the lost colonists uh, in my book. Uh, later on, well after these events took place, uh, this was in the 1730s, the man who founded the city of Richmond, William Byrd of Westover, led an expedition to establish the boundary line between Virginia and North Carolina. He wrote about it in his History of the Dividing Line. At the Currituck Inlet somewhere, he came upon this man and a woman. Apparently they were Caucasians. He doesn't say, and the whole thing is very, very funny actually. But he tells about they're all, the two of them are living in the nude together uh, with their hair all covering themselves, using his clothes and uh, acting like Adam and Eve as innocence accepted, as the bird says. But I was just wondering, has anybody ever tried to make any connection between the hermit of Currituck Inlet uh, that Bird talks about in the history of the dividing line and the lost colonist. You know anything about that? I, 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 I do know. Uh, I do know about Bird's account, and uh, I don't know if there's been any connection made. Uh, the, the English begin moving into the area. Uh, the area being uh, up by the Chuan uh, by the mid 17th century. Uh, so they're already inhabiting parts of the Chuan. Uh, then Roanoke Island itself, probably in the second half of the 17th century. Certainly there were Europeans moving down from Lower Norfolk County and other counties on the south side. It could be that uh, the, uh, the, the, this new Adam and Eve living in their own Garden of Eden uh, were, uh, were, were descendants of those people. Uh, I think that's likelier than being connected to the lost colonists. I also grew up in northeastern North Carolina, and we used to hear that the lost colonists had migrated down around Lumberton because of the, in the, with the Lumbee Indians, there were uh, Indians with blue eyes, but is there any evidence of that? Uh, well, the, uh, the, you know, much of the subsequent history, if we, supposing we were to uh, consider what, what happened to those survivors of that, of that great massacre or battle or slaughter that was uh, led by Opikankano in 1607. And th those, those are the survivors that appear on this map, Tuscarora. Uh, the Tuscarora were broken up in the 18th century. There's a, there's a great deal of uh, 
forming and reforming of Indian peoples, taking on different identities in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's, it's a tragic history, of course. But there is, uh, I know that there are traditions amongst the Lumbee that they do have connections with the Tuscarora. And of course, if the lost colonists are living with the Tuscarora, that would, that would, make, the, that would make the connection. That, 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 that's the nearest I can, can get to that. Do you feel like there is sufficient evidence for your theory to uh, be able to pinpoint perhaps some areas for archaeological excavations? That's a great question, and uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm uh, associated with a group of folks called the First Colony Foundation who are currently undertaking excavations on Roanoke Island and believe they're coming pretty close to finding the settlement, the uh, either the 1585-1586 or 1587 settlement on, on the island up there by Fort, Fort Raleigh. Some of you might have followed some of the recent discoveries they've made and if not uh, just go to uh, firstcolonyfoundation.org uh, and you can read about those excavations. Now what I'm trying to do is, uh, that, that's great stuff, and I'm trying to talk them into surveying the region up by, uh, the, on the Chowan, uh, at the mouth of the Chowan, just, just across the river really from uh, Edenton, maybe uh, close to Salmon Creek, those of you that, that know, know the area. I think there's a very good chance that's where the group, the large group went before they dispersed and joined the Choanocks and the uh, Tuscarora at Okanahoan. Uh, I think the other area to look at would be in that vicinity of Okanahoan. That was a big trading town, and that's where a, a great uh, battle took place in 1607, uh, in my view. And uh, I, I think there's a chance that we might be able to find something up there. Of course, it is a needle in a haystack, and archaeology being so expensive, I think, um, you know, we'd have to get lucky, but I think we, we at least would be looking in the right direction. And I think if we're fixated on the Chesapeake Bay, we're looking, we're barking up the wrong tree. One more question. Okay, uh, do you, I'm assuming then that you agree with other historians that there probably was intermarriage between the natives and the lost colonists, and we probably have their descendants with us now? I do believe that. Yeah. I, d I don't think that's true. I don't think that's just unique to, to this period. I think it's uh, true of the Jamestown colony. I think it's true of the Spanish colonies. I think it's, uh, if you like, uh, part of the story. In this case, of course, in some ways, the first English colony um, is absorbed by I Indian peoples. In uh, 1607, Poetan is seeking to absorb the English from uh, Paspahay, Jamestown, into, into his chiefdom. So I, th I think it's just, I think it's a very important part of the story, this melding together of, of different peoples. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.